0: It's prevalent isn't even a good enough word. It's flooded our markets. And it's amazing to me that doctors, embryologists, and patients don't have a clue what's going on. That, that certainly, that everybody says, well, the eggs are cheaper from there. But those savings are not being passed on to the patient. They're
1: still paying $22,000 for a cohort. This episode was made possible by our feature sponsor, the World Egg and Sperm Bank. Head over to www.theworldeggandspermbank.com protect and download their free due diligence checklist to ensure that your program only sells eggs from donors that have been safely and ethically protected. That's theworldeggandspermbank.com protect. Today's episode is paid content from our feature sponsor who helps Inside Reproductive Health to deliver information for free to you. Here, the advertiser has editorial control. Feature sponsorship is not an endorsement and does not necessarily reflect the views of Inside Reproductive Health.
2: This is one of the most serious topics we've ever covered on the Inside Reproductive Health podcast. Off the top of my head from what I can think of from 200 episodes, it's the most serious. It has to do with the trafficking of young women and exploiting them to sell their oocytes unsafely at a profit, a huge profit. To me, it seems the worst case scenario is this is something that's happening with hundreds, maybe even thousands of cases. And the best case scenario, as far as I can tell, is that clinics are very vulnerable to using and selling eggs from women who've been victims of trafficking because from what I see, the chain of custody isn't secure enough. There's too much movement, too much uncertainty. I'm not qualified to say, but my guest has done a lot more research in this area. Her name's Diana Thomas. You know her as the founder and CEO of the World Egg and Sperm Bank. Not only was she among the very first of agencies and banks, she was among the very first patients to be the recipient of donor egg IVF. She found her own donor, made her own contract, had children from donor egg IVF, then started doing that for other fertility doctors and other fertility clinics who recruited her to find other donors for their other patients. Dana talks about the changes that she made in 2014, 2015 as vitrification became more popular, but then people were stimulating differently, they were freezing differently, they were shipping differently. There are all these different spokes in the custody wheel. So her egg bank centralized everything. Stimulation, shipping, recruitment, screening, protocols. And it gave her a really tight bead on quality assurance. Around 2018 and 2019 is when Diana saw a really large spike of imported eggs coming into the UK and Canada and the United States from developing countries. Many of these countries have been flagged by the U.S. State Department for being high risk for human trafficking. Diana says it's not just a correlation. There have been articles about very large... arrests happening with human trafficking and coercion for egg donors. The most recent one at time of this episode, August 23, just happened on the Greek island of Crete. She references the PH dissertation of a whistleblower from a Ukrainian clinic who talks about how Ukrainian records are falsified. Women are forced to sign consents. They're pushed into doing far more retrievals than you would. She gives one example where a woman did 24 egg retrievals. Dan estimates that six 600 eggs, 480 that are viable, 80 cohorts of six, maybe 40 children from one Ukrainian donor. And according to the reports of the whistleblower, that donor was paid $100 per donation, where the other parties, including the criminals, but also including the clinics and egg banks, Made a lot more money than that. Dana talks about Ukrainian clinics trying to sell off eggs at $200 a piece because of their compliance issues with the FDA. So they sell through a Canadian cryobank. Dana goes through examples from different egg donor agencies and banks where there's contradicting information. She says she lives in one place, but in the other part of the profile, she said she's Ukrainian, doesn't have a green card yet. In another profile says that she's seeking asylum. She talks about how donors are coached to amend their profiles so they seem more upper class, so that American, Canadian, and British, and Australian recipients are less likely to suspect her exploitation. So I asked Diana what she does differently. She talks about the residency requirements for her donors. She talks about the identity requirements for her donors, the multi-phase personality test that's required from each of her donors the human trafficking protocol that they have for their donors, how she can be so much more certain that their donated eggs are coming from women who have not been trafficked. There's, of course, huge ethical implications. There's legal implications down to the clinic and the provider. Diana talks about a new human trafficking act and the legal and financial implications from that. And I give a business and a public relations warning. Many of you are CEOs. Many of you are practice owners. Imagine trying to sell your practice. Imagine trying to sell your fertility network to another network or buy another network to go public with your network. You've done all this marketing, gotten all this buy-in about your mission and values. And a major media investigation reveals that donor eggs that you're using for big profit are coming from women who've been coerced and exploited in traffic. The human concern comes first. This is something you have to look into. The World Egg inspired Burnbank has a checklist for your due diligence for protecting yourselves from human trafficked eggs, protecting your patients from that, ultimately protecting the donors. That checklist talks about ownership history, donor sources, chain of custody, accountability, practice liabilities, and donor care. Use that checklist as an agenda for a meeting with your leadership team, you can get it on the World Egg and Sperm Bank website. We're gonna to link to it on this episode page, we'll link to it in the ads we run with this episode, we'll link to it in the email that this episode comes out in, but do your due diligence because this could be a major threat to your company. Now on to my conversation with Diana Thomas, CEO of the World Egg and Sperm Bank. Ms. Thomas, Diana, welcome to the Inside Reproductive Health podcast.
0: Thank you, excited to be here.
2: I could spend probably an entire episode just talking about your background. So I don't want to spend all of the time in there because we have an important topic to touch on, important topic that we should all be concerned about, that we should all be investigating and making sure that safeguards are in place that it isn't happening, but your background is really, really interesting to me. So I want to give a little synopsis, and you tell me if I got it right, but sounds like you were living in Canada in the mid-'90s. It's around 1995. You need assisted reproductive technology. The wait list in Canada for IVF is several months, and no donors are available there at that time. You move back to Phoenix, Arizona, where you're originally from, they can do donor egg IVF, but they're not doing XE or anything, and they don't have like their own egg donors available. They don't have banks that they're working with, so they tell you, "Yeah, sure, if you can find one, we'll we'll use that person's egg." You recruit your own egg donor from the Arizona State campus, and then you write your own contract for for that. There wasn't like third-party contracts at that time, so you write that and and you went, you decided to go with open identity from the very beginning. How close am I to having that right?
0: Yeah, pretty close, except I was in Canada in the, in the mid-'80s when I actually started in IVF, so it was right at the beginning of, really, the the creation of the industry.
2: So you start. You were you had gone through some cycles, but it was 1995 when you did your first donor cycle in in Arizona. Oh
0: yes, I went through basically. Yes,
2: yeah. So you're learning. That was
0: after 15 years of trying.
2: You're learning everything on your own at this point as you're going through it, and then at that point, someone says to you, hey, can you do that for our other patients? Was it the clinic that you had went to see? Did they tell other fertility doctors? How did fertility doctors start calling you and asking if you could find donors for their patients?
0: It did start at the clinic that I had conceived through. And I also conceived through my second children, my twins, through another clinic. But basically, it was the doctors from those clinics calling me and then I don't know, we're just really spread. I started getting phone calls from intended parents just begging me to help find donors.
2: In the beginning, would you say that you were an agency rather than a bank?
0: Oh, absolutely. There, yeah, there was no egg freezing at all at the time, not until 2005, and 2004. So it was, all, it was a fresh donor agency that I started then.
2: And so it was about 2015 where you started to make your company into an egg bank?
0: No, we became an egg bank in 2004 with slow freeze technology. And we had our first baby that was documented on Good Morning America in 2005 through frozen egg out of Lexington, Kentucky. So we began recruiting donors just for the bank. But at the time, the slow freeze technology wasn't nearly as good. I think pregnancy rates were around 32% at that time. So we switched over to vitrification in 2009 and was, we were freezing eggs then. At the same time, up until about 2010, I was also doing fresh donor cycles around the country. Taking donors to different health patients.
2: So vitrification starts to take off. And then in 2014, I had read something where you said you started to find out that quality couldn't be assured. And I think that has something to do with different eggs being vitrified at different clinics sold to different banks and them being incentivized on as many retrievals as possible and, and tied to the sale of the donor egg. So can you tell us about what you started to see in 2014?
0: Well, you know, we were an egg bank probably six or seven years before any other egg bank came onto the market. We were egg banks before, actually I was I was a donor agency before there were any ASRM guidelines. There were no contracts. There was no, there wasn't even FDA testing on donors at the time in those early days. So I started to see that the business model that other people were forming was to do outside network retrievals. So they contact various clinics to do their retrievals. And I tried that with a couple of clinics to start, and I realized there, there was no way to really control the quality. I, I couldn't depend on if I worked with this doctor, he would hyperstimulate the donors, and I worked with this doctor... They would only get five eggs because they were afraid of hyperstim. It's just, there was no way to control the actual process for the donor. And because egg freezing was so very new at the time, not a lot of people knew how to do it. And we would send in our own embryologist to freeze eggs at those network clinics, but we still could not. We just couldn't track family limits. We couldn't do all the things we wanted to do. So I said, we just have to start a whole new business model. And that is a centralized model, which contains everything on location from recruiting to stimulation to freezing to shipping. And we could manage all the family limits, all the testing, all the egg freezing and all the shipping. So we ended up having incredibly good success rates doing it that way.
2: So that's what I was thinking of happened in 2014 and 2015. So by 2015, you are doing everything the same way, protocols, screening, stim, vitrification, storage, the way you ship. That's all uniform across the board. Correct.
0: Same staff, same experienced people. Yep. same protocols.
2: So at this time, you're really starting to build a quality assurance that is locked down. And because of that, you could probably see whenever there's some variance in that quality or if there are gaps in the QA piece of it. And then you start to see a trend happening in 2018 and 2019 of of eggs coming from other countries. Tell us about that, or, or maybe not even other countries, but particularly from developing countries.
0: Yeah, I, I really was rather unaware of it until probably two years ago. But in all of the reading and research I've done, it did start much earlier. In fact, there's a clinic in Chicago that's identified in the book, The Red Market, that talks about donors being shipped into Chicago and retrieved and then sent back home. So, it, it's been around a while, it's just become so incredibly overwhelming, I mean, it pl- it's right now developing country, aches from developing countries, and sperm now by the way, is really flooding, just flooding the US market and the Canadian market and the UK market, and it's really a lot more information has come out about what's going on behind the scenes, and it's pretty alarming, like, very alarming
2: why 2018, 2019? What was it about that time period that this trend started to happen?
0: I think it was the globalization, the economic globalization and IVF really picked up. And most of this this is really driven by global funding and global purchases of US companies and Canadian companies and UK companies. So yeah, they have strong ties in European countries and other countries. So they're they could see a huge profit margin by doing it this way. And I'd love to give you an example, if you're ready to hear one anytime, how much money people make off the
2: Yeah. Hold on to that example for one second, because I want to ask, you said that it's alarming. Why is it alarming?
0: Well, any human trafficking should be alarming to anyone. The fact that all of these eggs are coming from countries well known for human trafficking Human trafficking stems from organized crime and that you can go onto the government U.S. Department of State and see annual reports published about every country's human trafficking behaviors and statistics. It's well-known and well-documented. They estimate 60,000 Russian women are human trafficked a year, and prior to the war in Ukraine, at least 6,000 Ukrainian women were, and those are the ones that are reported so it's it's not a thing that just happens once in a while, or maybe one donor is treated poorly out of the thousands that are listed on websites. You know donor concierge boasts twenty five thousand donors
2: so there's alarm because these two things are happening in parallel. One, you have a big rise in eggs coming from developing countries and they also happen to be countries where human trafficking is a really big problem and uh, so well,
0: well it's been documented as well there have been people who have documented these specific donors and specific instances of that of this and i i have plenty of references i could make to some of those documents but it's also that's yeah human trafficking it's, it's everybody should just stop there but then there's also who's telling recipients that this is going on and who can validate any of the data, medical data. There've been two recent arrests that show that the the medical data is falsified for egg donation for genetic material being sold to the West. One article just came out this month of 71 donors that were rescued from an organized trafficking ring in Greece. So I think that, you know, the, the cycle we don't understand is these women are trafficked, and they're trafficked into with uh, fraudulent promises of vacations or jobs or or work, and then they're put into dancing at clubs and prostitution with egg banking on the side. So do we really think that these, some of these women don't have HIV? Who, who, whose blood is being tested? Who's, who's tracking the chain of custody for any of the testing that's gone on in europe that you can't even track the, the actual documents down much less know the chain of custody especially well i'll, I'll wait for you to ask some more questions but <laughs> there's there is
2: well, t- tell us about the example you were thinking of
0: well if uh, there's a great document if people are really really don't believe this is going on by Polina Valesko, who did her dissertation at Indiana University in 2021, and lived in Ukraine, and worked at a Ukrainian egg bank for three years. So she came back with all kinds of interviews and documentation and explanation of how the process works and how records are falsified and how donors are are told to consent, sign these consents so they they won't can't donate, they're not going to get paid or just the coercion and inherent in almost every step of the process uh, and coercion of vulnerable women is a definition of human trafficking. So Natalia, for example, was interviewed by Polina, and she donated so far in 2021, 24 times. All the records that we get on these women say donation up up to six times, and they were in four or five different countries. She got paid about $100 per donation, so that's $2,400. She produced around 600 eggs on an average cycle. Maybe 480 were mature out of those 24 cycles. So that goes to 80 couples. Six cohorts of six goes to 80 couples around the world, meaning there's probably 40 children from this one donor. That's just the egg side of it, but the money side of it is she gets walks away with twenty four hundred dollars. The broker, pimps that bring them in, and the doctors that retrieve the eggs, are making seven thousand five hundred dollars per cohort of six. And, and and I know that I've got emails from people offering me those prices. So they're making six hundred thousand dollars right there. Then they sell the eggs to U.S. egg banks and Canadian egg banks and Canadian and doctors who turn around and sell them for $22,000 to their patients. So the doctors in this country and the UK and Canada are making $20,000 off off of a single cohort of eggs. So around, this donor was worth around $2.6 million and we are supporting organized crime in that purchase.
2: How does the report know discover that this donor had did twenty four retrievals when you know it may have been reported that she did four or six? How did how did they discover that she had done twenty four?
0: She works in the clinic that sent her out, and well, was, she wasn't the only one. She documented. She documented a number of them. I just picked that one out as an example. So some were up to fifteen times. Some were more than that. They go, they go to um, Israel, they go to the U.S., they go to Spain, and they retrieve in Ukraine.
2: So this P- Polona Valesko, am I saying her name correctly?
0: Polona Valesko, Yeah, She's yes.
2: a whistleblower. She works at a Ukrainian clinic or worked at a Ukrainian clinic, and this is what she's observed from the patients coming through.
0: Well, it's also her PhD dissertation, so it wasn't just journalism, you <laughs> know? And she didn't get her PhD. She had to defend this dissertation.
2: So you have someone that is getting $100 that when we know that the total compensation is a lot more than that, and that's going to different people. It's going to the people doing the retrievals. It's going to people that are bringing her in. And that's also way more than, it's way more retrievals than we would expect to be safe for, for anyone. Right. And so, are so are are we are we mostly worried about this happening with women that are in these particular countries? So, if it's Ukraine or Georgia or Russia, we're, are we worried about the trafficking that's happening to Ukrainian, Georgian, Russian women, or are we also worried about people that are being trafficked into those countries, like? Turkmenistan or the UAE or or other countries where people are are being removed from and brought into which is it are they, are they both a concern
0: all are concerning because they're all forms of human trafficking and where we're supporting organized crime by buying those eggs and supporting this cycle of violence and coercion with women around the world it's also Uh, If you look at the U.S. Department of State report on Spain, for example, it's considered one of the worst locations for trafficking women into Spain, and they're coming now from Bolivia and Chile and Venezuela and Brazil and Colombia and Nigeria. And that's it's all documented in U.S. Department of State records that this is going on. So these women get into these places. They also document that they're confined in apartments. So they're used for prostitution. You know, it's a model that the organized crime is calling the renewable resource model. So these women are considered renewable resources because you can use them all up and use them again and again and again. Prostitution, modeling, dancing, egg retrieval, surrogacy. The one that was arrested uh, this month was for all three of those things. Prostitution, surrogacy, and egg retrievals.
2: Can you tell us about that arrest? I was unfamiliar with this story.
0: Oh, yeah. It, it just came out on um, August 20th, around that time. I think, yeah, I think I've got it on my, on my LinkedIn, in fact. But basically, doctors, secretaries, embryologists, organized crime in particular, uh, persons were all arrested for, uh, because of 98 women that were being used for prostitution, surrogacy, and egg retrievals for egg donation. And in the arrest, they found all the medical documents falsified, consents falsified. It was, they rescued these women from confinement.
2: Was this also in Ukraine?
0: No, there, it was in Greece, which is really interesting. It's the second arrest that was large like that. The other one was in 2019 there. But there were women from Russia, from Ukraine, from Lotola, Georgia, and other countries that were sent to Greece to be retrieved.
2: And so and Cyprus is an area that has been dinged for human trafficking in the past, a neighbor to Greece, and so women are... Both vulnerable in these countries, and then they're vulnerable from other countries that go through these countries. You have 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 given talks before where you go through profiles of different donor egg banks, and there's contradicting information in the profiles. You know, the things will say like she's in London or she's in Florida, but then you read through the rest of the profile, and she's in the Ukraine or she doesn't have a green card. It says. Green card pending doesn't so it's like well is she is she is she actually in Florida or like or or in Florida like and and you know there's ones where it'll like it it says seeking asylum you know it it says that in the profile and so tell us about these examples
0: well I mean there are thousands of them and you know I people say to me well who's doing that in the U S and I basically would say who isn't I mean really. I believe that almost every egg bank is. And they're also shipping them to Canada, to Can-Am Cryo Bank. I, I mean, we had somebody approach us at Eshray from Ukraine, trying to sell, to dump the eggs for $200 because the FDA is coming down on them and said, you have to buy them from Can-Am Cryo. So send your patients there. We'll ship all of our eggs to Canada because it's, there's no FDA in Canada. So there's, no, there's, no, there's absolutely no verification of the, t- of the testing that's going on for these donors. So they go from, you know, Ukraine to Poland to Spain to a, a bank in the U.S. to a Canadian egg bank in and out of tanks. And people are buying them and have no clue where they're originally from. And there's no disclosure at when, they're, when they're purchased by recipients. That, that any of this is going on. People assume that if it's in the United States or Canada, it's legal and it's healthy and it's safe.
2: Well, it seems to be a big chain of custody you know, that can be easily obscured. Nightmare. Because, yeah, it's, it seems to me that that you can... Feel like, oh, this is the source, but you don't actually know the source because it didn't come from this agency or this clinic and get shipped to this clinic or this agency. It was brokered by yet another intermediary that was trying to unload O sites for reasons that you say, oh, we're in Ukraine and things are really bad. And we're so we're gonna try to sell eggs at a discount. And but you have to go through this other person. And ultimately, yeah, the patient really isn't aware of of that long chain of custody. How familiar are the clinicians with that long chain of custody? Do they know where eggs are coming from?
0: I really don't think so. No one has really stopped to ask the question until recently, we've been trying to educate people about asking questions, which is why I've done a checklist for people to start asking questions in order to determine where the eggs came from or, or if they have answers. Um, I did an online survey um, in April, just a quick quick and dirty, to embryologists. Do you know the source of the eggs you're warming? Only 33% of them, the N was only 200, so it wasn't huge, but it's a pretty good indication. Embryologists are really honest, you know, they do answer directly. And of those people that that did know, they knew that 50% of them they thought came from the U.S., but that's because the U.S. Egg Bank name is on the shipment. And the other 50% knew they came from Eastern Europe because they sponsor a clinic or from the UK, which is really just another transit country because they don't retrieve eggs and send them out from the UK and, and Spain. So people are aware that it's happening and they're entering that data as a SART clinic into the SART.
2: And so I think that the Any Egg Bank would say, oh, well, they do say because you go to their website. In fact, one of the examples that you had in in your talk, you, you point out all of, you, you show the map of where they're getting their donors from, from a multi, you know, I think it's like 20, you know, they say 20,000 donors available or something and of course right on their homepage they say each of our egg donors is required to complete a rigorous application and screening process prior to being added into our database for their safety and for the health and general health of your future baby we document and verify every egg donor's identity education and mental physical and reproductive health why is that wrong how how can it, it how do it, they're all going to say the, the same thing. What, in your view, is insufficient about what they're doing?
1: Well, it's,
0: it's all a lie. They're marketing to the Western market. If you go to Polina's dissertation, she talks about how the session with the psychologist is how to, how to amend their profile to make them look like educated, white, middle-class women so that people in the Western world don't feel guilty getting eggs from poor abuse women who are not educated so they falsify their talents as you saw one of the donors who had spoke five languages including ancient Latin played jazz and classical piano and had a real estate degree but she's a freelance model it you know really I, I and they are saying they're not lying about any of that stuff when you have do, um, people getting arrested for false records and who who actually validates any of it. How do you know the eggs you get, actually, the blood you get is from the same donor whose eggs you get? Because they say so? Is that gonna hold up in court? Is that gonna hold up to the FDA audit? Well, look at their website. They say they do all this. They must do it. It's it's. And yet, people like us, who actually do it all the right way, are held accountable, And can be prosecuted for not following the law.
2: I know what's going to happen after this episode comes out. People are going to hear it. uh, CEOs of networks are going to hear it. Doctors are going to hear it. Lab directors are going to hear it. And they're going to say, oh, crud. They're going to go to your website. They're going to download the checklist. And then they're going to go to whoever they're buying eggs from right now. And they're going to say, how do we know that you're that you're not going to, or how do we know that you're actually safeguarding, and making sure that these are are from donors who are are properly verified, who are safeguarded, who are not trafficked, and those egg banks are go- inevitably going to say, we, this is what we do. We've got it all under control." Are they lying in your view, or is there something that those egg banks aren't doing, even if they have good intentions, to? V- to properly verify the chain of custody.
0: Well, the question is, are you going to stake your clinic reputation on that? When, when a baby is born in out of your clinic with HIV, are you going to say, well, they told me I believe them. There's no source documentation that can be discovered in a court of law. You know, they, there's documentation that this stuff is falsified. Do they do it for every person? What, the question is, who, Who is a third party that's not making money off this that's auditing them? There is nobody. So when they say that they are FDA registered, yeah, you can be FDA registered. And the FDA has this wonderful little loophole that's abused by Western clinics is that it says if you sponsor, if you sponsor that clinic in Ukraine, you're verifying, you're personally stating you believe that they're actually doing FDA compliance. So they send the eggs over, but there's no documentation. And if they do get documentation, how do you know the chain of custody for the blood work that was done? But the but when an F when an FDA agent goes to your lab, what are they looking for? They're looking for for real proof that there's infectious disease testing going on for this particular set of eggs. And that that's just not going to be there.
2: What would proper identity verification look like?
0: Well, I'm not sure that it really matters. When you traffic, you're trafficking, whether you identify them correctly or not. You know, the act of trafficking supersedes all else because the act of trafficking is, is against the law and is punishable. And it, it doesn't mean that you're not trafficking because you bought the eggs and you didn't know she was trafficked. You buy stolen goods, you have to return them. It's, it. you are accountable. You're liable. You're transferring those eggs into your patient. You're the last person to say, well, yeah, I, I trusted them over there. I believe that. And how, how do they know? I mean, we're talking about Ukraine, but they're getting eggs from Bolivia and Chile and all different sets, all, all different countries. So they believe all those doctors? They just believe everybody? It's okay? Yeah. That's what's going on? when. Like it's documented, there's so much human trafficking going on in those places. and specific instances of it. it. It's just all over the all over the internet, if you want to go, the U.S. Department of State.
2: Yeah, especially in, in countries that are war-torn, like Ukraine, or are bad state actors, like Russia, where no one trusts what's coming out of Russia, typically. And so why would you trust? the? So if you didn't trust the Olympics, if you didn't trust fraud and, you know, involvement in different, in in other countries and, and, and and sabotaging other people's internet infrastructure. And then, but, but you're going to say, no, but for sure, we know that they're safely doing egg donation.
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean, organized crime drug lords run Bolivia and Colombia, you know, it's not really a, a disconnect there.
2: Yeah, it seems to it seems too high high risk for for my taste to be having those eggs come from other places especially because to your point you could have the proper identity verification but that it okay this is the donor Diana Thomas but we didn't know that Griffin Jones or someone else didn't make her come here and is stealing her compensation and then forcing her to do that over and over again and and other things. And so what is it about what you're doing at the World Egg and Sperm Bank that you feel very confident that we know our donors aren't coming from human trafficked places? We know that they're not being coerced into doing this. We know exactly who they are, where the eggs are coming from, where they're going. What is it that you're doing differently?
0: Well, first of all, we do everything in one location. So we have one building. Every single donor comes through our door. We see them, we know them, we take their ID, which is usually a passport and a driver's license, and another form of ID if we can. They are interviewed here. They are uh, interviewed independently outside of here by psychologists. They do MMPIs to show that they're whether they're lying or not. They're also interviewed by doctors that are uh, also on contract outside of us, so we're not trying to manipulate the outcome. And anybody who comes in the store from the United States, we only use donors that are U.S. donors who are residents because you have to be able to track them back. If you're going to follow family limits and international laws, we actually limit our donations to 10 families worldwide for egg and sperm. So um, these women come in. We know who they are. But we also, these women have opportunity. They're educated. They have an opportunity for other work. They have legal support if they feel that we're doing something wrong. And every document and every person and, and procedure we do in here can be discovered in a court of law. So we are accountable from beginning to end for our donors.
2: All of your donors are US residents? All of them. Only.
0: I think we've had a few. We have had a few Canadian donors, but I would say in the in 10 years we've had like three.
2: And then they're all donating at the lab in Phoenix.
0: All of them are retrieved in our one location and they're frozen here and they're shipped from here. So there's no other hub we ship to. There's no excess handling of the eggs. They go from our lab to a clinic's lab.
2: So you can be a lot uh, more sure of, of who they are and, and where they're coming from I, I, when you said MMPI, that was the first I heard of that. You said it it helps to detect if they're if they're telling the truth or not. Tell us more about what that is. This is the first time I'm hearing of it. Yeah,
0: I started it when I started working with egg donors in the '90s. But it's it's MMPI is multi phasic personality disorder test that psychologists use. So it's a yeah you know, 700 questions that you have to answer in an hour, so that it detects consistency or if you're misrepresenting yourself, or you're trying to make make yourself look too good, but it's analyzed in a program that psychologists have been using for decades and decades. And it identifies people that have compulsive lying, or they're borderline schizophrenic, or there are various disorders that show
2: up in that testing. Is that the same thing as the Minnesota something? Yes, yes, yes. yes. Test. It, it was like 560. Yes. S- Minnesota. Uh, okay. I just uh so I've taken that before years ago, probably 20 years ago. It's like 567 questions, I think. It, it took me way longer than an hour if I recall correctly. I think it took me like three different hour sessions to do it. Now, I'm I'm a slow test taker, but so when when are, are, every single donor is doing this? Yeah,
0: and they're only given an hour. That's part of the testing, the parameters of the testing, because they don't want you to think about all the responses too long. That's that's kind of the whole idea of it. And they'll ask the same question, you know, 20 different ways, it, you know, and you, you tend to going through very quickly, so your answers are very spontaneous.
2: And you're doing this for every single donor? Or just some? No, all
0: of them. I've done it for 25 years.
2: Wow. So, I, I, is anybody else doing that specific test for their donors? that You, you know,
0: I, I think there used to be some people that did it. I, I really haven't kept up with what other people are doing, to be frank. So, I suspect they're doing that or some version of it. There's another version that's not quite as intense um, as well. So, I, I think. And then there's people who just sit there and talk to them for half an hour and they write up a paragraph and that's it, which is really probably most of them. But the psychologist, you know, interview in Ukraine was documented as being a how to how to doctor your profile meeting and the consents actually in the law state that a a person that is trafficked and signs a consent, that consent is entirely
2: invalid because they want to doctor their profile because if they seem more affluent if they seem like they're upper class or upper middle class then you kind of reason by proxy I heard you say in in your talk that they it's a, well you know if they've studied at university and they have a masters or the, or they have maybe not even this but they speak six Languages, one of <laughs> one of which is ancient Latin, and they've studied philosophy, and they they're a jazz pianist and a concert violinist, and all of these other things. Then you think, well, they can't be coming from downtrodden conditions. Yeah,
0: it's it's kind of appeals to our Western culture. We we don't like abuse. We don't like human trafficking. Most of us haven't been exposed to it at all. It's uh, it's hard to even accept that this is happening right under our noses. And people are going to start being held accountable for it. And I, I wish people would listen and not get in trouble over it. But if we're going to keep sponsoring organized crime, the eggs are going to keep coming until somebody really gets in trouble over it. But it is a way for us to feel comfortable that, that these women are not being trafficked.
2: The women in some of these other countries are being coached to, to elaborate and fabricate on their donation profiles where you're putting them through a pretty rigorous personality test to make sure that this is who you say you are and that uh, you know some of these other personality disorders are screened away. Right.
0: And it's also somebody outside of my organization. She's an independent psychologist, so she's got her reputation and her license to protect, so she's not going to tell me what I want to hear. She's going to tell me the truth.
2: I, are there, Is there anyone else, any other egg banks that you know of that, that all of their donors are U.S. residents?
0: It's prevalent isn't even a good enough word. It's flooded our markets. And it's amazing to me that doctors, embryologists, and patients don't have a clue what's going on. That, that certainly, that everybody says, well, the eggs are cheaper from there. But those savings are not being passed on to the patient. They're still paying $22,000 for a cohort. And, they, and they're getting something they don't really know what they're getting now.
2: Oh, you have a, a screening level that seems to be above and beyond. You can point to a couple of things that, that are actual differentiators. They're not superlatives like we have the most rigorous screening testing. It's, we can say all of our donors are U.S. residents. We can say that every single one of our donors gets... Uh, this MMPI test. We can say that we check all of their documentation. Do you have any other assurances for making sure that, that they're not coerced though? So imagine the MMPI helps with that. And if they're US residents, we know they're not coming from other countries, but trafficking can still happen in the United States. Do you have any other assurances for, for knowing oh, this person wasn't brought in by a pimp or an abusive partner or uh, some other organized crime person we
0: have an official human trafficking protocol every donor that comes in and is given a cup to to urinate in is told to put a red dot on the cup if they're being coerced to come in yeah vertus in australia just did a modern human trafficking protocol for their egg bank for their clinic so people are starting to come around to seeing that you have to mitigate it somehow
2: So you take them away? Do you take them away from whoever they came in? I noticed when I went into the labor and delivery ward uh, earlier this summer that I was—they—they took my wife first, and I hung out in the waiting room, and then—and then they came and got me, and they said, "Are you safe? You know, were you brought here on your own? Do you feel safe to go home? Do you?" you know all, all of all of these sorts of things, and so how do you how do you sort of coach the the woman on what the red dot means? How to um, use it?
0: We actually bring them in the back, away from the if there's anybody with them. That we t- discuss this in the back. The nurses and the doctors do when they're doing their ultrasounds and they're taking their urine sample. If anyone were to say, I, "I'm not comfortable going home with him, or something's wrong," we would take them into the back of the building and call the police. And you know, that's all we can do really, but we've never had that happen. And I've gone through at least 30,000 donors in my life, <laughs> but, you know, we also do reimbursement sheets so we know where they work. We know what their income is. When I have somebody come in that says, I need to pay next month's rent. It's a no go. That's that to me is taking advantage of a economic vulnerability
2: which your standards of coercion are, are higher, which I think is good, by the way, Dan. I think that's it, ethical. I think that so because you could argue that's a form of economic coercion. Like, Is she really consenting to donate her eggs if she absolutely has to you know, feed her firstborn or if she has to make rent or uh, any number of things, pay off a, a debt that's going to send in a bankruptcy, uh, and so you're you're checking for this, and where I just can't believe that's the case in in many of these other countries, and 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 in many of these other countries that the threat of what living to paycheck to paycheck actually means is greater than it is here. And I'm not saying it isn't it isn't a big threat to live paycheck to paycheck here, but one people. Do it more in other countries, and two, what it actually means is that you don't eat. Yeah, I I lived in Bolivia. I lived in Bolivia in 2014 and 2015, and poverty in Bolivia means that you don't get, you don't put food on the table that night, and and so there aren't different social safety nets, and so simply by virtue of having donors from other countries, you simply couldn't have that same level. Of assurance of what we might call economic coercion, because they do have that economic threat. It is more present and it's more dangerous, in generally speaking.
0: Well, true, and I, you know, I see your points. I think that sometimes I hear the argument that um, that we do it here in the U.S. too. The point is, I think that's a red herring, and you hit it right on the head. The social network is here to rescue people who do fall into those. Pits. I mean, if she had no food, could she go to a homeless shelter, could she, are there, you know, is she educated, She could she get another job, does she have legal remedies for if she was abused here or she felt she was coerced? It's so different when people have support systems built into our social network, as you say.
2: Yeah, I don't want to belabor the point, but I think a couple of people might listen and say, "No, it is still bad here, and it's it can be bad here at different points." I'm telling you, it's nothing like what it is in these other countries. I am telling you, you, you you poor here means that there you're you're living in public housing and it's rough, and and appliances aren't working, and sometimes utilities aren't working, and and there's there's lots of crime, and all of those things are are serious dangers. What poor means in Bolivia is that it's a dirt floor with a tin roof and you, you, there is no, there's, there's no, you know, public transit that you can even just get, get a bus pass for. There's no soup kitchens. There's no, there's no homeless shelters, at least in the rural areas. And so, you know, this is the case in a a lot of different points. So I won't, I won't belabor that anymore, but I know somebody's probably thinking, oh no, it's still just, is, I'm telling you it isn't. And, and so, okay, so you've, you've, you have these checks and in, in balances in place, and thank goodness no one has has had to to use the the red dot. But you're taking the women away to make sure that that they're not being trafficked. Now, what? Let, let's talk a little bit. Uh, we talked about what egg banks can do. We talked about what 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 you're doing. Let's maybe talk a little bit about what else clinics can be doing because. And, and you alluded to this checklist, which I think people should go to your website to download. We will have it on the page for this episode. We will link to it in the email that we send the episode out into. And and people should go because every CEO is going to want their team to look at this. Every lab director is going to want to look at it. Every practice owner is going to want to look at it. But let's talk about more about you know, what, what happens to clinics if they don't have these things in place and then what they can do to protect themselves from using human trafficked eggs?
0: Well, you know, I suppose, uh, just not using them at all. It's really the only way to be safe. Um, how to, how, to, how can you say that this cohort's probably okay, but this cohort isn't? I, I don't think you can do that. I don't think it's a, a matter of protecting yourself from trafficked eggs from third world countries or developing countries. You can't change the whole social system in other countries, so the only way you can stop it is by not supporting it by paying for the eggs. You know, there's the the, the intended parents have no clue this is going on. Can you imagine telling your child, you know, in 18 years, sorry, you know, your donor was a prostitute, and there's her, all of her records were blown up, so I can't tell you anything about her. You know, I mean, it's just the down, you know, this is not going to just stop with transferring eggs. It's going to be the pregnancies, the children born, the children who, who want contact with the donor as time goes on. I, I think that there will be a lot of lawsuits if people are not more careful about this and just don't engage in it. The FDA is catching on, and, you know, I think it's a disservice to our own clientele. I mean, our own profession and our own, the people that we really want to help that I know that every clinic and doctor really wants to help because they they can't, they can't double check any of that stuff, and they should stop pretending that they can. I don't know if I answered that question or not. It's a, it's kind of just goes on and on. You can't, there's no way to do it halfway. I guess
2: so you really can't use eggs from these other countries. You have to use those from that are where there's there's one source that where it's one country. Are there other countries beyond the u s that you feel are safe? you know you, you imagine that sometimes you use Canadian citizens, so the u s Canada are there other countries where okay if if donors are coming from these areas that then that's safe Is it only developing countries that you're concerned about?
0: No, I mean, I think you can recruit donors in Australia and the UK, but the chances of doing that are pretty low because of their own laws around reimbursements. I I don't have any trouble recruiting donors. I have more donors. You know, I can, I have 200 that are already all banked. I could, I could double that in six months if I wanted to. So when people say that, you know, we got to do this, there just aren't enough donors. I just have to disagree and see. You're doing it because you're making a ton of money easily and you don't know how to recruit donors. You don't, you don't put the three or four staff people to do this 100% of the time, which is what it takes. It takes a lot of time and effort, especially to get it right legally and worldwide, which is what we do. We follow laws in at least six different countries. So everything has to be really monitored
2: Donor sources is one of the areas of the checklist that you also have. You also have an accountability, which you, you list out specifically what that means with CDC, with US. It means where were they sent prior to the US that also kind of dovetails with the with uh, the part of the checklist that you have for chain of custody, where it's... It, where you're monitoring who maintains the chain of custody, who's, who's handling, who's doing the auditing. Then you have an area for patient care and practice liabilities, the risk that they've been in, informed of, the family limits. And then you also have a section for donor care talking about how, how to know if the donor has been stimulated more than recommended, et cetera. Tell us about some of these, these other areas and, and what practices should be concerned about
0: yeah, I think you know again it's been documented everywhere in many places including the dissertation that when a donor's hyperstim she comes back to the clinic banging on the door and they say "tough your donation's over good luck go find go get better somewhere." So they're not cared for. Any any repetitive egg donation over you know that many repetitive egg donations has long-term consequences for for these women. The the clinics, you know, they are They can't verify the records. They can't verify the profiles. They can't verify the ID. All they do is have eggs sitting in front of them. And they feel that, well, if the patient went there and and ordered them, what am I going to do? I just have to warm them and transfer them. But the fact is, when a doctor takes eggs and warms them and fertilizes them and puts them back in a patient, he's the last chance to rectify a problem that will that could happen to that woman and that child he's participating he's condoning the whole process if he transfers those embryos into a patient he they're not going to go and sue a broker or or a pimp in some other country they're going to sue the doctor here and the lab and the staff it's you know so it's there are huge liabilities i think and they just haven't they just haven't shown up yet because it hasn't been around as as commonly as it is now, very long. So we'll see what happens in the next six months to a year. And if the FDA is already tracking down the Ukrainian eggs, they're going to be asking people in clinics when they do their audits to to show them the chain of custody for the FDA testing.
2: I'm going to give you the final thought. I want to conclude with my final thought because you're the expert in this area where I can shed some useful advice to those listening is that if this were connected to your clinic and and something big happens, it can be one of those irredeemable public relations travesties. So you're... Talking about the, the, the human concern, our listeners should be deeply concerned with the human concern. I'm sharing the business concern here on top of that. The human concern comes first, but I'm sharing the business concern on top of that, that many of you are CEOs that are listening and many of you are practice owners. But whether you're a practice owner of a, of a six-stock group in, in, a, in a city here or whether you are the CEO of a network that is getting ready to be bought by another network or to buy another network or to go public. Imagine something like this coming out from the New York Times that comes back to your clinic. This is something that you absolutely have to look into. I recommend you start by going and reading through the checklist, going to the world... Egg and Sperm Bank site, reaching out to Diana to find out more about this. But you absolutely have to look into it because if something like there was a an article that came out last year from the New York Times, they were surrogates, now they must raise children, and it talks about you know coercion and human trafficking and surrogacy in Cambodia. But if an article like that comes out and links someone to your clinic, oh, oh, and by the way, it was these clinics in the United States, these networks that purchased these types of eggs, that is a, a really bad thing to happen, especially if you're a mission-driven organization. Many of these fertility clinic networks market themselves on the missions that they're building themselves toward, and that would betray a- any core values that, that they're hoping to build their their brand upon and the the I'm I'm looking at the article that you talked about previously, Diana, where it's po- police arrest members of a baby trafficking ring on Crete, Greece. If any of this is 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 linked back to your clinic, it's really bad. Again, the human concern comes first, but that's the business public relations concern. I strongly recommend everyone to go to your website and read this checklist. Again, we're going to link to it in the show notes. We're going to link to it on the show page. We're going to link to it in the email that goes out. It will be on the the World Anggli and Sperm Banks website. And if you still need more help getting in touch with with Diana and, and, and finding those resources, I will I will connect to you personally. But Diana now please I want to leave it to you to conclude.
0: Well, I, you know, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I'm actually really trying to partner with clinics to help them out so they aren't in that situation with this education. But there's also another piece, you know, the the U.S. has ratified the U.N. human trafficking protocol, and in it, there's also punishment that comes along with being arrested and convicted, including repatriation of every penny you made from that trafficking act. So there is also a financial piece to this networks, global networks. I so I I really hope people are listening. It's it's something we can reverse. I think we all love our patients and really want to take care of our patients and give them healthy babies. So we have to be aware of these things to move forward.
2: Thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Diana, and sharing light on this topic. I look forward to hearing more about the follow ups and about the people that reach out to you afterward. Thanks for coming on the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast.
1: Thanks for the opportunity. This episode was made possible by our feature sponsor, The World Egg and Sperm Bank. Head over to www.theworldeggandspermbank.com protect and download their free due diligence checklist to ensure that your program only sells eggs from donors that have been safely and ethically protected. That's theworldegandspermbank.com slash protect. Today's episode is paid content from our feature sponsor, who helps Inside Reproductive Health to deliver information for free to you. Here, the advertiser has editorial control. Feature sponsorship is not an endorsement and does not necessarily reflect the views of Inside Reproductive Health.